words be your words, and may they find fertile soil in our hearts this morning. Amen. Well, it's the fourth Sunday of Lent, if you're counting, and um, I wanted to start with a little bit of a question. Uh, Have you ever watched uh, a sad or painful movie that you waited all the way to the final scene and then it just ends with no resolution? No light at the end of the tunnel, uh, just a a punch in the gut. And I'm not talking about a a good tearjerker or a classic tragedy. I'm talking about those movies that offer no hope whatsoever. You get to the end and uh, all you can say is, you mean that's it? That's the end? Well, near the top of my list of movies like this is one called Manchester by the Sea. And... um, As one film critic, who was actually a big fan of the movie, put it, uh, Manchester by the Sea is a study of life as it is lived, with unassuageable pain, loose ends untied, life lessons unlearned, life with no narrative closure. The characters don't grow, they don't overcome their flaws, their perception of the world remains unchanged. Now, I don't recommend this movie. So I won't go into many details here, but it won two Oscars. Uh, One for Best Actor, which is actually understandable because Casey Affleck's performance in this movie was was quite good. But the story, uh, wow, it is a kick in the teeth. Um, People who enjoy stories like this remind me of uh, this crowd when I was in high school, the Goths. And if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you know who I'm talking about. These are the ones who were kind of walking around like sad teenage vampires, uh, hanging out in graveyards, reading sad poetry to each other. Uh, But if you grew up in the 2000s, maybe you were, you know, the emo kids. Uh, It's the same same basic thing. You know, the the ones who express their angsty individualism by wearing the exact same clothes that all their other friends are wearing from Hot Topic. But whether goth or emo, uh, both of these groups were a pretty dreary lot, uh, wallowing in the dark hopelessness of our modern situation. Now, we're at the halfway point of Lent, and so after 20 days of contemplating your sin and mourning the darkness of your own heart, fasting from caffeine or sugar or uh, social media, whatever comforts you've given up, you might be feeling a little goth this morning. Um, But I I learned something kind of cool this week. Um, In some churches, on the fourth Sunday of Lent, the the halfway point, they'll actually change the the vestments. Now, I'm Irish and hanging on to St. Patty's Day, so I'm on all green this morning. But in some churches, they'll actually change the vestments and the banners to rows as a way of saying, keep your chin up. You're halfway there. There's there's hope. Don't give up. Uh, I'm not going to wear pink this morning, but... um, In Dante's Inferno, uh, we're told that written above the gates of hell is the inscription, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. So hopelessness is literally the overarching theme of the damned. I have a little map for you here, in case you're not familiar with the story, but whether or not you've actually read Dante's Inferno or not, most people know that Dante basically goes through the nine circles of hell, lower and lower, into more and more pernicious sins. Deeper and deeper until we finally reach the very center of the earth where we find Satan uh, gnawing on the body of the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, the perfect 
bedtime story for your doom-scrolling children. Um, But while everyone knows about Dante's Inferno, it's not as well known that these are, this is actually just one of three books in an epic poem that takes the reader through three different realms. And interestingly, the downward part of the story uh, happens during the last few days of Lent. And if you, once you get to Lent, uh, the story flips and Dante and Virgil, his guide, are going up the other hemisphere Uh, of the earth and crawl out of hell on Easter Sunday. So an interesting connection to to where we are. But from here, uh, they continue up the mountain of purgatory and then further up towards heaven. And when Dante finally reaches the third and highest realm, he sees all of the planets and stars and saints and angels in an elliptical, worshipful orbit around God. And it's at this point he realizes that through his entire journey, even as he descended deeper into hell, love, like some kind of divine gravity, has been pulling him upward the entire time toward the same orbit of the unveiled vision of God himself face to face. Yes, Lent is absolutely a time to reacquaint ourselves with what went wrong to think soberly about the darkness within our hearts that separates us from God. But as it was for Dante, abandon all hope is just the beginning of our story. As Christians, we're not moping around like some kind of angsty goth or emo brat wallowing in our darkness because the love of God, like divine gravity, is pulling us through this season up towards him. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk us through some of our scripture readings uh, from this morning, calling attention to a repeated theme that has a a very specific kind of Lenten direction to it. That idea being like Dante, we are on this downward ascent. And I know this sounds like a contradiction, but I hope to show you this morning that it's really more of a paradox that helps us prepare our hearts for Easter. Now, in a group this size, uh, and I, I, I know this because I've had lunch with you, I've had Mesa group with you. We, we, we all come from different places and different backgrounds. And some of you might be avoiding a, a, a real significant uh, observance of Lent because it just seems so unfamiliar. Uh, some of you have been practicing this so long that maybe it's become a little more just, just habit. And then I got to think that there are some of us here that Lent is just a very difficult time because the strange somber posture of it all just seems so counterintuitive to the Christian life. And just so there's no misunderstanding, my intent this morning is not to dismiss or over-spiritualize or pile on to push anyone deeper into some type of real pain or suffering or loss or depression that you may be going through. But regardless of where you are this morning, my hope is that something you hear this morning meets you where you are, gives you hope, and allows you to really dig into Lent, and by extension, the other aspects of the Christian life that we'll be talking about this morning. Our New Testament reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to walk as children of the light, for the root of light is found in 
all that is good and right and true. And so on the surface, Lent seems very strange. Why would Christians, children of light, spend 40 days contemplating and mourning the sin and darkness in our hearts and the separation from God that results? Philippians, the very next book in our Bible, actually tells us that we're supposed to think on whatsoever things are true and noble and just and pure and lovely. So how do we reconcile this with the season of Lent? But let's take a a closer look at our uh, reading from Ephesians 5 this morning. Notice that in verse 8, those who walk as children of light are to remember, for at one time you were in darkness. And in verse 11, we're exhorted to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by bringing them into the light. And then Paul references back to Isaiah 60, exhorting the lazy, slothful, unintentional sleeper here who has begun to live uh, like a dead man, as it were, horizontally in the dark to wake up and live vertically, oriented toward God in the light. So here we have a going down into remembrance, acknowledging where we came from and how we got here. Sin and darkness is expelled or exposed for what it is, which brings eyes that are opened to the light and the vision of God. You may have noticed that in the past few weeks during Lent, we don't say alleluia at certain points in the liturgy to recognize the somberness of the season. And if you're anything like me, who's kind of a rookie to the whole Anglican uh, way, I've forgotten that we're not supposed to say it and have blurted it out out of habit. And uh, this funny little mistake or habit that I have, isn't it funny how these little things sometimes reveal to us how easily we go on spiritual cruise control? We go on this kind of autopilot where we're just kind of going through the motions and and, and not really thinking about what we're saying. Instead of actively uh, and deliberately praying the liturgy, passing the peace, proclaiming the creed, I often find that the gears of my heart and my mind and my lips They're not engaged with each other, and they're just kind of spinning, separated from each other, going nowhere and doing nothing. As 2 Timothy puts it, when our words and deeds have the form of godliness, but lack the power thereof. Of course, the same happens outside of our Sunday morning liturgy, right? We pick up our phones, we reach for the refrigerator, the remote, without even thinking about these things. And Lent is about switching up the gears to make us aware of how often we go on autopilot throughout our lives. The full weight of our redemption story is not felt if we fail to remember what went wrong and how it is we got here in the first place. The gospel is good news, but it's not some trite, turn your frown upside down message, right? It's, it's got a real sense of tragedy at the heart of it. But as children of light, Too often we get spoiled and we want the happily ever after without the dark forces and dragons that need to be slain. And we too easily forget that these villains are not just out there, but they're in here as well in our own hearts. God's wired us to seek truth, goodness, and beauty, but the truth also cuts like a knife. Goodness requires discipline, and what I hope to show this morning is that there is a kind of beauty that is much less obvious than rainbows and roses and whiskers on kittens. Um, Every spring, I teach a course on the philosophy of art and creativity, 
And uh, one of the major topics that I talk to my students about is how we need to expand the categories of what beauty can be. Now, I'm not someone who believes that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and that it can just be whatever you want it to be, but there's a very, very interesting history around how our modern and very narrow concept of beauty uh, came to be. Now, to take uh, just a few minutes to tell a really long story, um, after the Renaissance and greats like da Vinci and Michelangelo, you enter the Baroque period and you get amazing works of art like this by Bernini. This is also a time when musicians are, uh, Bach, Vivaldi are going, uh, doing their thing, uh, architecture, you name it. There are just incredible things being done. But for the most part, uh, during this time, uh, beauty is characterized by a certain kind of beauty that is uh, extravagant, it's gilded, and full of flourish. And then right after the Baroque period, you have the Rococo period, where um, <laughs> it's even more ornamental and more sentimental. You have, in this case, um, you have lots of cupids and uh, young, rich aristocrats like frolicking with each other. Uh, down by the waterside. Or one of the most famous Rococo pieces is the swing here. And of course, I'm speaking in generalities for the sake of time, because the pendulum does swing back and forth throughout time. It's not as if all art looked like this. But by and large, with the exception of Christian art, the prevailing view of beauty during this time, all the way up until the early 1900s, is dominated by elegant, ornate prettiness. But when we come to the 20th century, people begin to ask, what answer could a pretty lady on a swing possibly have for the horrors of trench warfare? What comfort can Monet's water lilies possibly offer in the shadow of the Holocaust in Hiroshima? And when prettiness is unable to respond to any, with any meaningful comment in the light of back-to-back -back world wars, and genocide that left tens of millions of people dead and entire civilizations in rubble, the baby, beauty, gets tossed out with the bathwater, prettiness. And art begins to look like this. There's a lot more I wish I could say here, but in the interest of time, I have to keep going. But at this point, art is no longer about its meaning, its craftsmanship, or its beauty. It's art because I said so. Art becomes brute fact. And of course, this isn't just about art here, right? The philosophy behind works of art like this mirrors what was going on in the world. God is dead and so is beauty. Both have been reduced to nice, shiny, gilded, pretty ideas from the past. And all the brutality and ugliness of the 20th century seems to prove it. So do whatever you want in art, in life, for tomorrow we die. But the question I want to ask this morning, is beauty the same thing as prettiness? Or to put it another way, can something be beautiful without being pretty? Why is it that we love to gaze on destructive forces like tornadoes and lightning, from a safe distance, of course? Is it just the pretty colors and the flashes of light or is it somehow good for us to recalibrate by re reacquainting ourselves 
with the feeling of being small and helpless? What is it in us that loves a sad story, a song that makes you cry, a movie that breaks your heart? After experiences like these, we often say things like, I had a good cry. There wasn't a dry eye in the room, or it was so scary. And we mean these things as praise. What is that? Generally speaking, we don't have the categories for things that are beautiful and yet terrible or even horrific. When discussing this topic with my students, I often have them go home after class, shut down all of their uh, media and devices, and listen to the song Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. She recorded this song in 1939 about the horrific lynchings, lynchings of black people that were still happening fairly, uh, in, they were still fairly common in this country. The lyrics, I'm not, I wish I could play this song for you, but um, the lyrics describe the strange black fruit hanging from stately old trees in the gallant south, swaying in the same breeze that carries the sweet scent of magnolia blossoms mixed with the smell of rotting flesh. The song is absolutely chilling and yet beautiful. The tension between the two is actually what makes you lean in and linger with it. The terrible beauty grabs you by the ears and makes you listen. It's a heart-wrenching lament, but it's also a bold indictment of anyone who would ignore such barbarism. I encourage you to look it up when you have a free moment and listen to it yourself. So when it comes to tragic or terrible forms of beauty like this, what's going on inside of us? A few uh, suggestions here. Tragic forms of beauty have a special way of giving voice to the pain or outrage that we experience, but we just don't know what to do with. We don't know how to articulate it or process it. Great artists, one of the things they are are great interpreters. The experience of terrible beauty can be cathartic. We get to feel the full range of the human emotions that God has given us, sadness, fear, longing, weakness, the painful ache for long-awaited relief, but in a way that's actually healthy for us for a short time and from a safe distance, like watching a violent storm on the horizon or riding a roller coaster or standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Another thing is that there's always redemption in a tragically beautiful story, even if it doesn't end happily ever after. These kinds of stories cause us to say, it shouldn't have been this way, acknowledging the way it ought to be, implying a moral standard and divine justice. When the blues artist wrings his guts out in a song about a lifetime of hurt and lost love, we say, I know what that's like. I've been there too. We shed tears of compassion and solidarity for the broken human condition that we see reflected in ourselves. But it's also important to point out that terrible or tragic forms of beauty are not merely sordid or morbid realities. Tragedy is different than a nihilistic dead end or a bottomless pit. Beauty does not wallow in darkness or glorify evil. Psalms 23 from this morning is a good verse to look at here to help us turn back to this theme of downward ascent. 
In Psalms 23, yes, our shepherd lies down with us in green pastures and leads us beside still waters, but we are still here, down in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, as deep and as dark as valleys can be, valleys are also fruitful. We are assured that this walk is through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, it's temporary. We won't get lost or build a permanent home here because God, our good shepherd, is taking us somewhere. We typically think of the shadow of death being cast upon us from the outside, but like I said earlier, sometimes that shadow is actually coming from within, and Lent gives us an opportunity to contemplate the reality of that. But regardless of where these shadows or evils come from, they're just shadows. Whereas God became flesh and dwelt among us. He prepares a table before us, not in some castle, not in some feasting hall, but in the presence of our very enemies. And it's because he's bringing us somewhere, up and out of the valley, to himself to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is a downward ascent. So what about our gospel reading from this morning from John chapter 9? Well, for context, we didn't read it this morning, but just to to remind us where we're coming out of in John 8, remember that Jesus is in the temple talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them he is the sent one, the light of the world. And of course, this makes the Pharisees really, really angry, but somehow Jesus slips out from among them as he was known to do before they were, had the chance to stone him. And so when we pick up the story in, verse, uh, in chapter 9 again, Jesus is actually walking right outside the temple, and this is where he runs into the blind man. But did you catch some of the details this morning in the reading? Like all of us stuck in original sin, this man was born blind. It didn't happen to him somewhere along the way. He was born this way. Then Jesus reiterates to him in verse 5 the same message that he just preached to the Pharisees, that he is the light of the world. But this time, unlike the Pharisees who were metaphorically blind, Jesus' audience here is literally blind. So I hope Jesus, I hope you're going somewhere with this because the symbolism you've chosen is kind of inconsiderate to a person who doesn't know what light even looks like. But of course, Jesus is taking us somewhere. And that's when things get really weird, if we're honest with ourselves. Jesus goes from talking about light from above, and he spits on the ground below. He bends down, makes some mud, and then he anoints the man's eyes with it, saying, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So, two questions. Why mud and why the pool of Siloam? Why does Jesus use mud to heal the blind man? Well, can you think of any other time when God condescends and reaches down into the dirt? One suggestion from the world of art that I wanted to propose to you is the creation of Adam. When God creates new life, from the dust of the ground, which in and of itself is dead and lifeless. It has no life in it, but he breathes life into it. So here in John 9, the use of mud points back to God's new creation of the first Adam. But here we have Jesus, the second and greater Adam, also speaking life into that which was dead and lifeless. 
So why the Pool of Siloam? I see at least two reasons, but again, I want to give you a little background here. This is a, a 16th century etching from an artist named Veronese. Uh, it's a scene from the Pool of Bethesda, several chapters back in John 5. And if you look here in the background, you'll see an angel descending um, from the top, and then there's a person, a man who's sitting in the pool waters, uh, raising his hands up to, uh, up to the angel in thanks, as if to receive uh, healing. So if you remember anything about this story, um, at certain times of the year, the angel was, according to legend, would come down and stir up the waters, and whoever was first into the waters would receive their healing. So essentially what you have here is a competition. Whoever was the fastest, the most patient, whoever wanted it the worst, right? That's who got their healing. But on the left, we have the paralytic man who's been there his entire life because he doesn't have the strength in his own self to drag himself to the pool. And John chapter 5 also goes out of its way to say, and there was no one else who was able to take him there. Very interesting. It's almost as if John is trying to tell us something. So Jesus goes directly to this paralytic man sitting by the edge of the pool and says, rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, forget the pool. It's not about the pool. It's not a competition. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Healing is found in me. But if the pool doesn't matter, why does Jesus send the blind man in John 9 specifically to wash in the pool of Siloam? Let's take a look. Reason number one, for some reason in verse 7, John includes this little parenthetical detail that Siloam means sent. Do you remember what Jesus had just told the Pharisees? That he was sent by God. Jesus tells the blind man to go wash off the mud, mud that has deeply symbolic connections with Adam. And which pool did you say, Jesus? You know, the scent one. Go wash in the scent one. So why Siloam? Instead of some other pool known for its special healing powers, Jesus is reminding us that healing comes from him, the scent one, who washes away the muddy stain of sin that kept us in darkness since Adam, creating new life out of death. Another reason I think we have another downward ascent here. This is a map of Jerusalem. And uh, throughout the city, there were several pools where people could go to purify themselves before going up to the temple to make sacrifices for their sins. If you want to see something really cool here, as I was preparing for this week, uh, I put my Indiana Jones hat on and uh, did a little digging here. Anyone want to guess what you'd find at the lowest spot in elevation within the old city of Jerusalem? The Pool of Siloam. This is actually a picture of it. They rediscovered it in 2004 and excavated it, and now it's open to visitors. You can go and see it yourself. So the blind man quite literally makes his way down from the temple to the Pool of Siloam. Now, just imagine what the walk back up to the temple must have been like for this man. For the first time in his life, he can see, but he hasn't seen Jesus yet. He's heard his voice, he's felt his touch, and he hasn't, but he hasn't seen him face to face yet. 
something else to consider. At this time, while the sick were allowed to beg for alms just outside the temple, they weren't allowed to go into the temple because they were seen as unclean. This explains two things, why Jesus runs into the blind man outside of the temple right after he slips out, but it also explains why the disciples ask whose sin is to blame for this man being blind. He was seen as unclean and unworthy to go on to the inside. So with every step that this man takes up from the pool of Siloam up towards the temple, the reality begins to set in that he's not only physically healed, but he's positionally purified. For the first time, he will have access to the place where the presence of God dwells, a place where he was once forbidden to go. But when he gets all the way back up to the temple, the Pharisees cast him out because they wouldn't believe that Jesus was the healer. Interesting. John 9 continues to tell us, but Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he goes looking for him. And he found him saying, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus replies, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. I also want to call you back to remember, do you you remember Jesus' cryptic statement in John 2, that they might destroy this temple, but in three days, Jesus would raise it up. And so this story in John chapter 9 ends with a man who was born helpless, into darkness, cast out of the old temple, basically for a second time, standing in the power, presence, and unveiled vision of the Son of God, the new temple. It's a downward ascent, both literally and symbolically. We see the downward ascent theme all throughout Scripture. In Jonah, He goes down into the belly of a well until he sees the error of his ways, prays to God, and he's vomited up into the light. And then God tells him, arise and go to Nineveh. In Matthew, the last shall be first. We love to put James 4.8 on our coffee mugs and screensavers. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But the rest of the passage, not so much because it expresses the heart of Lent. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Ah, but humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The incarnation of the Son of God is a series of downward ascents. He comes down to us from heaven, down into the hunger and thirst and anxiety of human flesh, but as a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, yet yet without sin, down further into Gethsemane, betrayal, humiliation, and physical anguish, but then he's raised up on the cross as the king of glory and raised to life as the king of, de- of death and over sorry, the king of king over sin and death after being laid down in a borrowed tomb. So his resurrection on Easter Sunday is on its way, but for now, we linger. 
and we lean in to Lent because we want to become intentional where we've become automatic. We decrease so that he may increase. We expose the darkness without wallowing in it. It may not be pretty, but it can be beautiful if we expand our categories to include the downward ascent. When we forget where we've come from, we're less likely to appreciate where God has brought us and where he still wants to take us. In the book of Exodus, God's people had become so comfortable and accustomed to daily quail and manna until they had forgotten what it felt like to be in Egyptian chains. And before you know it, the same people who witnessed the Red Sea part before their very eyes, as if it didn't even occur to them, defaulted to worshiping a golden calf at the very foot of the same mountain where the Lord himself comes so near to Moses that his face glows with the glory of God. This is our story, not just theirs. Lord, have mercy. Lord, let our hope in Christ be the gravity that draws us upward through this downward ascent until we stand face to face in the unveiled vision of your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.